Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to share with us either visually through YouTube or uh, audio through uh, uh, Spotify. Uh, what's the other one? iTunes and uh, uh, Amazon. Thank you. I need help because I've forgotten which which one they all are. But uh, we always want to take the opportunity to uh, offer you the chance to say to us how we're doing. Uh, if you have anything that you want to suggest to us, please feel free to contact us at fredjeffsmith at cox.net. fredjeffsmith at cox.net. I'm very happy today, honored to have uh, sitting with us today uh, uh, Mr. Luke Mixon, who is running for uh, United States Senate for the state of Louisiana. Uh, Mr. Mixon is uh, a gentleman with an outstanding military background. I'm looking at your bio. You have an outstanding military background, and you have decided to offer yourself up for public service in the United States Senate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Tell me this. You're from Bunky. How did you decide that you wanted to be a Democrat in a rather red state like Louisiana. How, how did you come to the conclusion? It, it, was that a family choice? Was that a personal choice? How, how did you decide that you, that you wanted to be a Democrat? That's a great question. I, I did grow up. Uh, my mother is a lifelong Democrat. My grandparents were, um, were Democrats. My father's always been an independent. And... Um, you know, you know this. As we grow as humans, we I've always been an open-minded person, and I've always considered all political platforms, and I do consider myself um, a moderate, serious candidate. But I'll tell you why I'm a Democrat, and I say this in kind of two ways. In the affirmative, mm -hmm. I'm a Democrat because I believe in recent history Democrats have stood up for equal opportunity and protecting the most vulnerable. And I believe ultimately a society is judged upon that. How do we provide everyone an equal opportunity to, to succeed, and how do we take care of our most vulnerable citizens? And the Democrats have been the right, on the right side of that issue during my lifetime for sure. Um, I guess there's another way to answer that as to say what I'm not. And what I see from the Republican Party right now, at least from certain sects of it, mm -hmm. are a disregard for the truth. And that is not what I am. And so I'm a proud Democrat and proud to be running uh, as a Democrat here in Louisiana. Well, according to the bio that, that, that I have read, and, and please correct me if there's anything in there that I got wrong, your military service began almost at the same time that 9-11 happened. And 9-11 uh, played a large part in determining what your military career would look like. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, for us, J just give us an idea of, of, of what your background is with regard to military yeah, service. Yeah, I um, I graduated from the Naval Academy May twenty fifth, two thousand and one. I always tell the story. You know, I was uh, I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was I was going to Pensacola. Um, I was 
given a flight selection position out of the academy. And, you know, roughly 100 days after my graduation was September 11, 2001. And that event shaped the course of my military career. Uh, I ended up spending all my deployments overseas in support of our operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. I ended up, uh, I was, I participated in Operation uh, Enduring Freedom in Iraq, Iraqi Freedom, obviously, in Iraq. And then finally, I was deployed in the fall of 2014 through the spring, I'm sorry, through the winter of 2015, which if you remember, that's the time that uh, ISIS was leaving Syria and then going into Iraq. And we were arriving on station right at that time. So my entire career was really shaped upon uh, 9-11. In fact, I retired. I graduated about 100 days prior to uh, 9-11, and I actually submitted my official retirement just uh, right as we were um, withdrawing from Afghanistan. So it perfectly encapsulates that time period. And uh, yeah, no other, no other event shaped my, uh, my career um, more so than that. Were you always planning on coming back to Baton Rouge at the end of your military, Baton Rouge, to Louisiana uh, at the end of your military service, or was that a choice that was made along the way? A hundred percent. There was never any doubt. My wife and I are also from here. We both graduated from Bunky High School in 1997. We've been together for uh, 26 years now. That's wonderful. Yeah, we're, I'm real proud of that. We've been married for, uh, for 20 years, have two beautiful children. Uh, her parents are here. My parents are here. Um, she has a sister here. I have a sister here. We have so many family and friends here, and there was there was no choice where we were coming. We um, we were coming back to Louisiana. It was just a matter of where we'd end up, mm-hmm. and uh, we ended up in Baton Rouge. We've been here for six years now, and uh, could not be happier. As I always say, we could not be happier to be back home, with one glaring exception, and that being our representation in Washington D.C. You know, I uh, and, and I'll, I'll just continue if you don't mind. I, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, why are you doing this? And, and the truth is, and, and you mentioned, I'm back home. I, I've been here for six years now. I could not be happier. I have, I have a great life. I have a, I have a talented, smart, beautiful wife. I have two great children. I'm not rich, but I'm, I'm certainly comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, life had slowed down for me a lot. Um, I always say my, my biggest worries were the New Orleans Saints and my tomato plants. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I really, feel, I really feel this is the right thing to do. I feel like running and continue to, to, to serve the public and, to seek a position in government is the right thing to do, and that's why we're in this race, because we believe it's the right thing to do. Can you tell me why you chose national politics instead of local or state politics? Uh, you make mention again in your bio that you don't consider yourself a politician, but when you did put your foot in, you put your foot all the way in to national politics as opposed to Metro Council or state legislature, things of that sort. What, what what went into that thinking? Well, I, I thought it was the best place for me. I thought it was the best opportunity for me. And um, and I believe I'm a good contrast to Senator Kennedy. I believe I give people a very distinct option and, and provide a sharp contrast to the things he stood for. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, one, he, he voted against an infrastructure bill that I believe is good for Louisiana. Mm-hmm. I believe it fixes our roads and bridges and brings, you know, hardens our electrical systems. And, Build back better. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, it, the, the infrastructure bill I thought was good. And he voted against it. And uh, and I would have I would have voted differently. Mm-hmm. I believe that um, his vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act. I disagree with that. I mm-hmm. think the Affordable Care Act is, is a great thing. I believe that the uh, expansion of Medicaid here in Louisiana, not I believe, it, it has. It's benefited 600,000 people. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, it was an absolute lifesaver. I don't, I don't use that word figuratively. It was a lifesaver for mm-hmm. 
thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people here in Louisiana. And then finally, I, I love this country. I love our nation. Um, I'm so proud of the progress we've made during your lifetime, during my lifetime. We've come so far. And that doesn't mean we're a perfect nation. I believe we still have more to do. There's still more progress to be made. We, we must continue to form this more perfect union. But we all have to agree upon the truth. And we have to agree upon facts. And when I saw Senator Kennedy vote to overturn the election on January 6, 2021, mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't believe it. After the insurrection. Yeah. You, well, thank you. You took, you yeah. took the next words a- out. After the insurrection. You, you took the words out of my mouth. It was, it was after the insurrection. And look, I always say, like, he's, a, he's a smart guy. He is. I, I, I always say I give credit where credit's due. He, he is an intelligent man. He knows better. Uh, there were 60 court cases that confirmed we had a free, fair, and accurate election. Mm-hmm. We saw the mob storm the Capitol. And his unwillingness to do the right thing, to do the hard thing, and you, I'm sure you face this all the time with people in your church, that we know the right thing to do. And it's not always easy. In fact, doing the right thing so often is hard. Mm-hmm. And it requires people of integrity. In this case, as of January 6th, it required patriots, people of moral courage who were willing to do the right thing, even if it might be unpopular. And that's leadership. Leadership is doing the right thing, even when you know people might not like it, even when it might cost you your job. And I believe, not I believe, I am, his vote on January 6th was, in the simplest of terms, un-American, and it is the very opposite of everything I believe in and everything my friends and I have fought for for the last 20 years. And that, amongst other things, is one of the main reasons why I feel, long answer to your question here, why I feel this election is the right one for me. I believe that Senator Kennedy has represented our nation and our state poorly, and I'm proud to stand up and say something about that. Senator Kennedy, at one point, I don't know how long back, uh, I think I'm a little bit older than you, uh, I'm 60, uh, <laughs> Senator Kennedy at one point was a Democrat, and at at some point in his career, he flipped and became a Republican, and now he is what I would call an uber-Republican, ultra-conservative Republican. I don't think—I agree with you. I think he's a very intelligent, smart, shrewd guy. I think this is more political uh, uh, maneuvering than anything else, and it leads me to— ask you about tribalism that exists within uh, our justice, uh, our governmental process. Uh, There is no longer room for uh, a moderate uh, in much of our politics. You're either an ultra-conservative or an ultra-progressive. Nobody likes the word liberal anymore. Ultra-progressive. And and those who hang around in the middle seem to be few and far between. What does that say about the state of our nation? Not just Louisiana, but this is across the board. This is everywhere you go in the country. What does that say about how we can get anything accomplished in this country? I always say that and one, I, I, th- I think you're right. I think that's largely what is, what is broadcast in the media is, is the, the extremes. And like I always say, I'm not here to represent the extremes. I want to represent the 70 to 80 percent of us in the middle who simply want a safe community for our children, want a good job, the roads paved, and a better opportunity for our kids and grandkids. Um, I believe 
that 80% of people agree upon 80% of things, but we spend all of our time on the things we disagree on. We spend a whole lot of time on inconsequential topics that only serve to divide us. And you can, we could talk about a dozen of those that we see people screaming at each other, not, you know, on, on television, on the radio, we see people being very, I guess the word extreme, being extreme about it. And that's not who I am. And, and, and I realize what you're saying. And I believe in the American people. I believe in the people of Louisiana. I believe that we all want more decency, more civility, some moderation, common sense folks who are not looking, like you mentioned, Senator Kennedy, who switched parties over and over again, who are not looking for political opportunism. I'm not. Like I said, I never in a million years thought I'd be doing this. Mm-hmm. But I believe it's the right thing to do and can only be who I am. I am a Democrat. I would consider myself someone of a of a moderate, common sense Democrat and I'm a serious candidate who puts the people of Louisiana, puts the people of our nation well above my political party or any political opportunity I seek for myself. And that's who I am. I'm proud of that. And um, I'm confident that Louisiana people will see that as well and be supportive. I uh, I came across uh, a poll uh, that was put out by JMC Analytics with regard to the Senate race, and, uh, well, I'm sure you're familiar with the poll and, and you know where it's in. The election is in November. For, well, first of all, let me ask you this. How can you take seriously any kind of poll, not just you, anybody, how can you take seriously any kind of poll where the sample size is only 600 people when there are 4 million people in the state of Louisiana? And what is the goal of promoting such a poll when it the, the sample size is so incredibly small. I watch a lot of MSNBC. I don't, I don't watch any Fox, uh, but I watch some CNN. And, and every time they put up a poll, I look at the fine print to see exactly how many people were actually polled. And in national politics, the poll might, the, the sample size might be 1,500 people. 2,000 people. How can you get anything close to accurate when the sample size is so small uh, on such major issues? And I guess that's my way of asking, do you take these polls seriously? Well, first of all, let me say I'm not a pollster. and I, have, I generally try to not comment on things I'm not an expert on or don't have a lot of uh, experience. So I'm not a pollster, so I'll, I'll reserve my comments on the accuracy of it. Um, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. Look, I had this idea in my head. I guess it's been, we're, we're in now almost, about a year ago, I had this idea in my head. This summer, I started to communicate that idea with others. We launched on October 5th, 2021, obviously. No one knew who I was. No one ever heard the name Luke Mixon before. We're just getting started. And I think, I, I forget the number we're at right there, but it's at like seven, seven, eight percent. Seven percent. I look, wasn't going to say it. it no, look, I, it. I'll, look I, I always say, I, t- I, I don't hide the truth. That's what it's at. Our name ID is at about seven percent. I couldn't be more excited. We're just getting out there. We're just getting out there. And if my name ID is at seven or eight percent and seven percent are saying they'd vote for me, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. We are just, in fact, we had a meeting yesterday. We're just getting started right now. We're working hard. We're raising money. We're reaching out to the communities. And when people get to meet me, they are going to find a candidate they can be proud of. 
They're going to find a candidate, like I said, who's not running to the extremes, who is not shouting about inconsequential items, who's not shouting nonsense that does not matter to the people of Louisiana. And I'm confident when I'm back here, and hopefully you invite me back in September or October, you're going to see a lot different numbers right there because we are working tirelessly to reach out to voters. And I tell you what, I I am so excited. I'm really excited about um, our potential, and I know that I have a very high ceiling, and I know that if someone is going to be competitive with and beat Senator Kennedy, it's going to be me. What's your experience with black folk? Black well, it's folk, my first time running. 32% of, yeah. uh, of this state. Right. It's, it's a third of, of, of the state. Uh, I'm going to ask you about that third thing in a, in a minute, too. Uh-huh. But uh, what, what is your experience, military experience, otherwise, bunky experience? What's your experience with, with African-American people? Yeah, I was... Um, you're right. I, I grew up in Bunky, Louisiana. I'll talk about those experiences a little bit. Um, I went to Bunky High School, very diverse public school, and I had the opportunity to uh, – I played a lot of sports there. So I had throughout my high school experience to, to work with and associate with a, a diverse group of people. And to be quite honest, that's where you asked me, well, I'm a Democrat. It was – plain to see and it's, it wasn't just African Americans but, but but white people as well that some people have more opportunity than others when they're blind. it doesn't mean they can't succeed it just means it's going to be a little bit harder mm-hmm. right some people just due to their circumstances due to where they were born um, it might be more difficult for them to succeed and I realized that from a very early age and then I served in the military and look there is no more diverse group of people in the world than there is the military I always say it's a great meritocracy where Everyone can everyone has an opportunity to succeed. Everyone has an even even playing field. And in my last job, I served as commanding officer of BFA 204, which is the Navy's Reserve F-18 squadron in New Orleans. And as a commanding officer, obviously, I got to establish relationships to everyone in the squadron. And it was inspiring and informative to hear the stories of people from 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 white people and black people and Asians and from U.S. citizens, non-U.S. citizens. And, uh, you know, I tell this story sometime, if you don't mind me sharing sure. an experience from uh, from one of the, my missions in Afghanistan. We were, I guess it was 2010 or 2012, and I was uh, flying a mission, and there were some, it was actually a, 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 a troop, I'm um, sorry, it was an Army unit from Louisiana, and they were under fire. And I, I happened to be there at the time, and they called in for support. And without going into too much detail there, we provided the support they mm-hmm. needed. And I was talking to them on the radio after we provided our support, and they were, they were scared, and they were fighting for their lives. And, you know, this guy I was talking to had this, he was had this South Louisiana accent. And that group there, when they were fighting for their lives, there were no black people or white people. There were not men and women. There were not U.S. citizens and, and, and citizens. There were a bunch of Americans mm-hmm. who were fighting for our country. And I had the opportunity to work with people like that in the military. Um, and I learned a lot from those experiences. And I learned a lot from people of different backgrounds and how people have different opportunities and from those experiences i feel that i can represent all people of louisiana very well there is one african-american candidate and that i'm aware of in in this race and right now 
he's polling better than you are. Uh, if I were to ask you to use this opportunity, because the majority of people who are going to be watching this, viewing this, are African-American people, to introduce yourself to the African-American community or present yourself, if you prefer that, what one or two things would you lift up that you think would resonate with African-American people as they get ready to go to the polls? Great question. You know, our campaign, I always say our campaign is about two things, standing up for Louisiana families and defending our democracy. And when I talk about standing up for Louisiana things, I'm sorry, Louisiana families, that's three things, right? That begins with inflation. And inflation is hurting all of us. But in particular, it hurts our most vulnerable citizens. Those, you know, we, I always say we talk about inflation like it's a like it's a bar diagram on on uh, on MSNBC or a, uh, or a or 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 a diagram in an economics class. It's not. Inflation is a mom trying to figure out how she's going to pay for groceries. Mm-hmm. It's a dad trying to figure out how he's put gas in his tank to, to work his two jobs. Our family just trying to make ends meet. And we have to bring down the cost of goods so people can afford just a, a, their livelihood. So that's, that's the first thing we talk about. The second thing is everyone deserves a safe community to raise their kids and grandkids. And right now in Louisiana, we are seeing a lot of crime. And there are various reasons for that. And I believe there are two solutions to this. In the short term, I believe we need to provide our police officers with the training they need, the training they need to do their job safely, effectively, but also humanely. And we need to make sure we're hiring qualified police officers that can protect and serve our communities, protect and serve our communities so everyone has an environment where their children can play and not have to worry about violence. In the long term, For crime, I believe the answer is education. I'm a firm believer in early childhood education. I believe that we passed this this year with Senator Cleo Fields, head of the We Passed Universal Kindergarten. We need to pass universal pre-K as well. Mm -hmm. I also believe we need to fund our institutions of higher learning. Look, we're seeing our best and brightest leave Louisiana all the time, right? They just don't see an economic opportunity here for them or their families, and they're leaving. We need to fund our institutions of higher learning. We need to fund our HBCU, so we keep our best and brightest right here in Louisiana. And I'll say the last thing, we have to do something about jobs, right? We, we need to provide quality, high-paying jobs, and I believe that begins with providing affordable daycare. You know, I ran into this a little bit. I'm not sure if you've had this as well, but, you know, so often parents must choose between both parents entering the workforce or one staying home mm-hmm. with the kids just because daycare is so expensive. Mm-hmm. You go to work, by the time you, you pay for clothes and gas and the daycare, all your paycheck's gone. So I believe we need to find a way to make daycare more affordable so both parents can enter the workforce, provide two paychecks for their families, and we all know more money in your pocket equals economic opportunity equals opportunity for your children. That's what we all want, Right. That's what we all want is an opportunity for our kids. We want to see our kids do better than we did. And that's what our family, that's what our, um, our campaign is all about, doing something about inflation, providing for public safety, and bringing jobs home here to Louisiana. If you were in the Senate right now, uh, in the next couple of weeks, you'd have the opportunity to cast a vote uh, regarding uh, the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, Senator Kennedy has not verbalized what his vote would be, but I suspect I already know what his vote is going to be. What would be your vote on 
the judge and why? Yes, 100%. I would confirm her. I, I watched the hearings. I was, in fact, my uh, my wife and I were driving back from, um, I went to, went to go see her parents this weekend. On the way back, we put on YouTube and we listened to a lot of the commentary again during the hearings. I was inspired. I believe that Judge Jackson is the embodiment of the progress we've made here in our country. In 250 years, not once, not one time in the 250 years of our Supreme Court have we determined that an African-American woman was the most qualified person to sit in the Supreme Court. It's about time. It's about time. And I believe that, that, that she is the embodiment of the progress we've made in this nation. I believe the way, the way I saw her daughter looking at her mm-hmm. with a smile on her face, it warmed my heart. Mm-hmm. And I was disappointed in the line of questioning from a lot of people, a lot of, of a lot of senators all out there. I talked about the inconsequential things that have nothing to do with American families. I was disappointed in some of the questions she was asked that had nothing to do with her qualifications to sit on the Supreme Court. Because if you look at her qualifications, she's qualified, right? Mm-hmm. That is that is without a doubt. And I would absolutely vote to confirm her and would be very, very proud of that vote as well. Let me turn to military uh, things, Ukraine. Uh, you served in the military. I'm sure you have a certain, I'm certain that you have uh, expertise on the whole matter of uh, how America should respond to this current crisis. What are your thoughts on how we should respond to Russia and Ukraine? Or let, let me ask you this way. How's President Biden doing with regard to this? Yeah, I um, first I'll say that much like I'm inspired by Judge Jackson, I'm inspired by the Ukrainian people. They are fighting for our democracy, for their excuse me, for their democracy, of their country, for their freedom, for their for their for their families, and they are they are inspired. I'm also heartbroken by the images I see. President Putin is a, is a, is a murderous tyrant who invaded a, a free and sovereign nation. And what he's doing is criminal. And I think President Biden said, well, it, it, that is criminal. He is a, he's a war criminal for what he is doing by, by targeting innocent people. Um, your next question, what would I do? Well, your assessment of what's being yeah. done. Yeah. I have an opinion, yeah, but, sure. I'm not, but I'm not military. I believe uh, that what, what we're doing, I'm, I'm, for so long, we've relied upon our military strength as our, as our means of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. We have other things at our disposal, right? We have diplomatic solutions. We have economic sanctions. We have seen those are, those are working. The economic sanctions on Russia are working, mm-hmm. right? I do not support U.S. troops in Ukraine. I do not support a no-fly zone. I believe this is where we need responsible. We use these words all the time, responsible leadership. The other day, and I won't say who, I won't give the name, but there was a, one of the members of the Louisiana delegation who very cavalierly said, yeah, let's give them a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone is an act of war. Mm-hmm. The way to establish a no-fly zone, look, this isn't Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, we call it Iraq and Afghanistan. We call those permissive environments where you can more or less fly without any significant threat to yourself. Mm-hmm. Flying over Ukraine is a would be called a non-permissive environment. In order to establish a no-fly zone, in order to establish air superiority, you must target Russian threats, right? They have advanced air-to-air and service-to-air weapons. Additionally, a lot of those service-to-air weapons are in Russia. Their range is at a 300—I don't give too many details, but they have very extended range sure. on some of their surface-to-air capabilities. So a no-fly zone equals an act of war, and 
We must remind ourselves that when we talk about war, there are no good solutions. It will always have a bad outcome. I've seen it for the last 20 years. There is no magic bullet. War is not clean. It is not pretty. And every time we talk about American involvement in war, we have to remember this is America's sons and daughters. These are brothers and sisters. These are moms and dads. And while Seeing the images in Ukraine are heartbreaking, and the emotional side of me certainly wants to help them. I do not believe that is through U.S. presence as far as troops on the ground. I believe that would simply make a, a, a bad situation a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. I do believe we continue to arm them with the resources they need to protect and serve, to protect their country. There are currently—I looked it up because I was concerned— uh, when, when, when Ukraine happened, uh, 24-7, that's all you heard was Ukraine, 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 Ukraine. Uh, I looked it up. There are some 59 wars going on in the world today. My simple question is, why is it that the only war that we're hearing about is Ukraine? And as an African-American one of the conclusions that I draw is most of these wars are taking place between black and brown people. And we don't, as Americans, see that. And, and I'm not just talking about the government. I'm talking about media as well, because the media is the one that that puts this on the air. We don't see it as important. We don't see it as valuable that these wars are going on. Some of them have been going on for decades. And yet you hear nothing about them. If you're going to ask me as an African-American, emphasizing American, African-American, to be concerned about Ukraine, should I not also be concerned about Chad and Niger and Somalia and Sudan and, and some of these other wars that are taking place and have been taking place for so long? And what is, what should be, in your opinion, our government's response to these wars as well? I think you ask a a very thought-provoking question. Um, And it is interesting in what conflicts the United States deems to be important and which ones they don't. Um, Now, there are certainly some significant global consequences with regard to Russia invading Ukraine, uh, particularly with the global economy. Um, And that is significant, and that is important. But you're right. Sometimes we do kind of pick and choose which humanitarian crisis we deem to be important. And look, I I always say this. The United States must always take care of our citizens first, right? But I believe we have a moral responsibility. As the leaders of the free world, we have a moral and ethical responsibility where able, where we can, where we can make a difference in the world and make life better for all people, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to do that. And when we choose to do that, I, I think that's a very good question. I think it's a very thought-provoking question that uh, I'm going to spend some more time thinking about and certainly love to hear, hear you talk more about it. I think it's a very good question. We're trying to put a bridge over the Mississippi River, uh, and we're looking for federal government help to do that. Uh, I understand that they're supposed to narrow down the possible selections of where the, to place the bridge to 10 
at some point this week. Uh, that's an infrastructure question. I'm 60 years old. What we call the new Mississippi River Bridge is 58 years old. <laughs> so it's hardly new. What do you think is the problem here in Louisiana, and particularly in East Baton Rouge Parish, that we can't get – I mean, even down in New Orleans, you see infrastructure improvements that you don't see here in the capital city. Why do you think that is? And what do you think can be done to rectify that from a federal government standpoint? You mentioned I grew up in Bunky. I've probably driven over that Mississippi River Bridge coming from Bunky to Baton Rouge um, thousands of times. I would love to know how much time I've spent. So I get off right there on Lobdell right. and, jump on, and jump on 10. I'd like to know how much time I've spent between the Lobdell exit and then the, uh, the Nicholson exit. It, it's days. It has to be. Um, why don't we have it here? I think the answer, I actually think this is a simple answer. You have people like Senator Kennedy who voted against an infrastructure bill. You have people who continue to vote against the best interests of our state who, who vote against what's good for us. And that's what I'm talking about, Reverend. That's what responsible leadership. People who stop playing to these divisive issues and instead focus on things that affect everyday folks like you and I. People who are sitting on top of the Mississippi River Bridge for hours and hours of our life. And the reason we have those problems are because people continue to vote against the best interest of the people they represent look look no further than lake, look no further than lake charles we were there the other day it looks like hurricane laura hit five minutes ago yeah those people can't come back to their homes they have blue tarps on their roof they have mold in their house because people are not fighting for them instead they're talking about nonsense every second of tv time i had as a u.s senator i would spend talking about Lake Charles or Southeast Louisiana, these communities that have been devastated by natural disasters. And I know I'm getting a little bit off of your original question, but the answer remains the same. The theme remains the same because people are not dealing with the issues that affect you and I. I think, I think that's, that's a very simple one. And I look forward to a new bridge. Um, I saw on the paper today there, uh, it's what, 10, 10 locations yeah, they have it narrowed they, down they, to? They, they've pared it down to 10. Yeah, I'm, ex I'm excited. I hope it gets built before... I'm dead. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> just, well, just, we hope so. You just want to drive so. over it once. Yeah, one time. One time. One time would be That's great. Fair. You want um, to not sit on top of the Mississippi River Bridge one time. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, with regard to, to, to infrastructure uh, problems, uh, it's not just roads and bridges. It's also, uh, well, President Biden tried to include things like Wi-Fi and Internet mm -hmm. into the Build Back Better plan, which got some pushback from other parts of uh, the country. But Wi-Fi is as much a part of America's infrastructure in the 21st century as, as roads and bridges are. Uh, so why do you think that there is there was such significant pushback to uh, that part of the Build Back Better plan that the president proposed? I think it, I think in the very first I think it was the very first question you asked me how are you gonna you know with so much extremism this day with people unwilling to compromise and, and, and work with each other in a bipartisan fashion that's the reason they know um, kids in, in, in here in Louisiana particularly our, our rural communities are in desperate need of broadband access the world has changed and we all learn mm -hmm. through whether it be tablets or phones or computers now um, 
so much of our learning is, is, is taking place through the internet. And there are so many kids, particularly, let's, let's be very clear about this, particularly in our rural and a lot of our poor communities, they don't have access to these things. And the idea of people voting against that very thing is just like the bridge. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. This is good for the people of Louisiana. It's good for our children. I don't understand people that, that vote that way. I, 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 I suppose the only answer is what you brought up in the beginning is political opportunism. They're just so unwilling to ever compromise or work with someone from another party in the name of the people they serve that they abandon the people they serve and only serve, and only look to serve themselves. And that, and maybe to, maybe to answer all three of your questions in, in summary, is why I'm running this race. We are in desperate need of change. We are in desperate need of responsible leaders, leaders who, this is not a, this is not a job. This, this should not be an opportunity for you to advance a political ladder. It's service. And that's what I think it is, and that's why I'm running. I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but... I don't believe that. Uh, according to the math that I was taught, one-third of six is two. That is correct. That is that's true. So when the governor uh, opposed the, uh, the the state legislature's redistricting plan that called for only one uh, majority-minority district, I was very happy that he did that. I think he should have gone a little farther within the state legislature, but uh, I'm happy that he did that. Uh, according to uh, today's paper, the legislature is planning a veto override session against uh, the governor. What's your opinion about, in that you would be going to Congress, and you'll be on the Senate side, but you'll have uh, your partners on, on, on the House side. What's your opinion about uh, the redistricting plan that the governor has opposed, and, and, and how do you think this is going to play itself out? I was so proud of Governor John Bell Edwards with his decision. You know, that, that's leadership. That's doing the right thing. He knows what the right thing is, and he did it. And I was, uh, like you, I was so pleased on his decision to veto the bill that did not provide for another minority-majority minority district. Um, it, it's a simple problem. And, and, and it goes back to, we talked about January 6th a little bit, but it's happening everywhere. We're seeing efforts to either disenfranchise voters or making it more difficult for them to vote. And the idea that, you know, you said 32, 33 percent of our population is African-American. We know that the Democratic population in Louisiana is even significantly higher than that, you know, in the 40s. And the idea that these districts continue to be gerrymandered in a way that do not actually represent the people of Louisiana is is wrong. And so, yes, I was very happy um, with Governor John Blamer's veto of that. How it's going to turn out, I have no idea. I will, I will gladly punt on that question. I hope it turns out uh, well for us, but I'm certain it'll end up in the courts, and I hope it turns out the right direction. But I certainly uh, won't uh, make any forecasts on that. But that very example is a reason why I am adamantly in support of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And it's shameful that what we all came to see is progress, right? It took the effort of so many people before you and I uh, who fought for the voting rights in this country and to see what we all came to agree upon. You know, as we always say, I think it was 2007, I believe, the Senate unanimously voted to renew the Voting Rights Act. And now something that, that was five minutes ago. 
Now we see this divisive issue, which, which no Republicans support. That doesn't make any sense to me. Not only are we trying to, not only are we stopping progress, we're trying to dial, dial back the clock or turn back the clock. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I adamantly support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and would, and would have certainly supported a carve out of the filibuster to get that passed. One more question, and, and we'll be close to I'm really enjoying now. the conversation. Thanks for having me. Um, Ronald Green was brutally murdered at the hands of law enforcement uh, in 2019. And there appears to be, my words, not yours, there appears to be a cover-up that took place with regard to that murder. Without getting into the particulars, which I don't know, I have opinions, I have thoughts, but... uh, as a United States senator, what can you bring to bear to bring reform to the state, Louisiana State Police Department, and local law enforcement? I know you mentioned earlier about making sure that they had adequate training, but when things like this happen, and far too often things like this happen, either on a state level or uh within the parish or within local municipalities, uh, what can be done that would allow the public to feel like their voices are really being heard with regard to prosecuting the offenders, not defunding the police, not wholesale removal of police departments, which I think most people realize is unrealistic uh, and dangerous. But... Police officers have rights that you and I don't have, and that's problematic for me. When, when, when Alton Sterling was killed, I learned things that I, I was completely ignorant about law enforcement. Uh, I'm just a step away from being ignorant about it now. But I talked to people who were in law enforcement, and one of the disturbing things that came out of these conversations was that law enforcement officers have rights— that John Q. Public does not have. And it's fundamentally unfair, from my perspective, that these things exist. And yet there has been no significant push to reform these things so that there's more of a balance between the rights of law enforcement and the rights of the everyday average citizen. What are your thoughts on that? And in your role as senator, what is it that you think you could do to help rectify that? Well, you mentioned the resources. And, you know, recently the American uh, Rescue Plan, which Senator Kennedy voted against, there was, I believe it was $350 billion for local and state governments to fund their police departments. So I believe it starts with that. I really believe it starts with the resources, the training, and hiring qualified police officers. You mentioned it. We need police officers. I believe the defund pol- the police, I think, that's a, I think that's a ridiculous idea. But I also agree with what you said about accountability, and there must be accountability for the actions of police officers. And I think that's part of those resources, making sure that those qualified police officers are also held accountable. Because I do believe, um, you know, I, I guess we're, there are – I believe that 90, 95 police officers are trying to do the right thing. Look, they're underpaid, much like teachers and firefighters and, and most public servants. They are underpaid, and they're understaffed. And – they don't have the resource they need to deal with uncomfortable or, or, or situations that they just haven't been trained to. I, I'll give you an example. Um, the other day, I took my son to the uh, to the park, mm-hmm. 
and I have, I have a uh, nine-year-old son. And there was, a, there was a young little boy there by himself. And he obviously suffered from, uh, I guess I'd call it a disability. He appeared to be autistic. Uh, we were trying to talk to him to figure out where his parents were, and he was having trouble communicating. And ultimately, uh, a police officer showed up, and a wonderful police officer. He, he, was, he was doing his job, but he was also clearly didn't really know how to deal with this situation. And, that, and that's fine. That's just he didn't have the training, and he was doing his best. And I know that's a, somewhat of a microcosm to your question, but I do believe we need to train police officers or provide other resources to cops so they can deal with a variety of situations because it is a hard job. And I believe that 95% of them are trying to do the right thing. That 5% that aren't, they must be held accountable and they must be re removed from the police force, if not, and, and prosecuted for their actions. If I commit a crime and I'm brought in for questioning, I'm a suspect, I'm expected to make a statement right away. If a police officer is involved in a violent exchange where someone's life is lost or maimed, injured, the police officer has 30 days to determine what his statement is going to be. I don't have 30 days to compose myself and develop a statement. Does that seem fair to you? I can tell you it does not seem fair to me. I'm asking you, does that seem fair and reasonable to you? Yeah, I'm not, I, I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with that provision you're talking about, and I'll certainly look into it and uh, would be happy to, uh, to get you a good answer after I do look into it. I do believe that police officers must be held accountable for their actions. Um, that, that I fully support. And if they are found, much like in the Ronald Green case, if they are found in a court of law to be guilty of a crime, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of that law. And I, I fully support that. Um, there are some, and I know there are some provisions given to police officers. And I believe some of those, to be, to be very clear, I believe some of those are necessary in order to sure, ensure we have people who want to enter the police force. Because it is a very dangerous job. Like I say it all the time, I don't want to do that job. I don't. It's dangerous. It's hard. It's difficult to do well. And I believe that police officers can only do their job well by giving the resources they need. Because ultimately, you know, their job is, well, they say, protect and serve, right? Protect and serve. Protect and serve our communities. And we all want that. We all want to protect and serve their communities. But I believe it can only be done as we strengthen relationships and strengthen the trust between the communities they serve and the police officers that serve them. And as those communities are strengthened, I believe we'll have less crime. I believe we have more accountability and have more qualified police officers that are simply trying to, uh, to serve us all. Okay. That's the only answer you've given that I've been troubled by. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're fine with everything else. Um, Amazon is moving into to Baton Rouge. And... Uh, front page of either today's paper or yesterday's paper was talking about uh, $15 an hour jobs as though that's some kind of a panacea. To my way of thinking, $15 an hour on a 40-hour week is $600 a week translated to a 50-week year. That's $30,000 a year. Nobody's going to get rich off of a $30,000 a year job. Uh, the idea, the, the, the crux of the article was that government was going to, state and local government was going to have to up its wages in order to maintain its employee base for fear that they will be seeking employment at Amazon uh, as opposed to continuing 
working for the government. Is there anything that can be done to give hardworking people a living wage? Because to my way of thinking, $30,000 a year is not a living wage. No. My wife, I, I'll tell a story every so often. My wife and I were talking the other night, and she said, uh, she said, she said hey, babe, what's the, uh, what's the federal minimum wage? I said, it's seven twenty-five an hour. And she said, that's not right. No one can live off of seven twenty-five an hour. I said, well, you're half right. You're half right that no one can live off of that. But you're wrong. That's what it is. I ask this question in crowds sometimes, and usually people get the right answer. So it's somewhat of a rhetorical question. But uh, do you know in how many states you can afford to pay rent while living on minimum wage at a normal work week? None. Zero. Yes. There's not one state in the United States of America that you can reasonably afford to pay rent making seven twenty-five an hour working a normal, a normal work week with a couple of kids. It cannot be done. We must do something about that. We must raise a federal minimum. It hadn't been raised in 2009. I believe it's lost 17, and, and even now it's probably lost even more, but last time we looked at 17% of its value just due to inflation. People can't live off of that. It's You're right. It's a poverty wage. It's not a living wage. I fully support, fully 100% support increasing the increase in minimum wage to give people, like you said, not a poverty wage, but give them something that they can have a little bit of breathing room. You mentioned before we started recording that you were raised Catholic. Can I close? This is a church podcast, so, so I've got to ask something about church. <laughs> uh, do, do you still practice Catholicism? Or, or, and how does your faith play a role in your everyday decision-making? Yeah, I, uh, yep, I'm a Catholic. We're members here at Our Lady Mercy uh, Catholic Church, just uh, not too far from here. And it plays a tremendous role. And I think you asked me, it relates to the first question you asked me, is uh, why am I a Democrat uh, and I mentioned equal opportunity and protecting the most vulnerable. And that's the way my parents raised me. My parents always raised me to for the respect and dignity of all. And uh, and what have you done uh, for the least of, of, of my people? I remember at my uh, when my grandfather passed away, I, I gave his eulogy. And uh, forgive me as I'm thinking back to it a little bit. Um, this is my other, my, not my not my grandfather served in the military, my mom's father. And uh, he and my grandmother are just, they were always doing for the least of our people. And I remember I read something that is uh, that I thought was just indicative of the kind of person he was. And it's, um, you know, when Jesus says, um, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was in prison and you visited me. And they ask him, when were you, you know, when were you these places? Yes. Whatsoever you did for the least of my people that you've done to me. And I believe that that's what it's all about is... I mentioned how I'm running. I, my, my life is, is comfortable. This is not something I thought I'd be doing in a million years. I believe it's the right thing to do. I believe we must fight for our democracy. We must fight for voting rights. And we must help those that are most vulnerable. Because there are a lot of vulnerable people in this nation. There are a lot of vulnerable people in our state. And the idea of helping the most vulnerable was, in, was, was created in me, both by my parents, by my experiences growing up in the Catholic Church, and by my grandparents as well. Mr. Luke Mixon, I want to thank you for taking the time to come and share with us today. Hope you'll come back again soon. I enjoyed it. I hope you'll have me back. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time. <laughs>